The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. This time's a little different than usual because they usually ask me ahead of time, tell us what you're going to talk about. So you came kind of getting a pig in a poke this time. You don't know what you're going to hear. And if it's something that you feel you already know a lot about, I hope I can put some new twists on it for you. Um, what I'm going to talk about are the five spiritual factors. Um, these are five states of mind that they say make us strong and secure in our practice. And these five states of mind are faith, diligence, our effort, and mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Some of these, of course, appear on many other lists. Buddhists do love their lists, you know, and you have umpteen lists of umpteen things. So these five spiritual factors then, faith, diligence, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, are called spiritual faculties because they possess controlling power in their respective spheres, and they overcome opposing forces. So what they say is that as powers, they're incapable of becoming overcome when we develop them well. So we'll start with mindfulness, which you probably figure you've heard maybe everything that can be said about. But I want to start with an image that will be new to some of you, I'm, I'm certain, that I think captures the essence of being mindful so beautifully. And it comes from a Christian writer named Kiara Lubick, who, when her fiancé was killed in war, made a decision much like the one that the Buddha is said to have made. You know, the Buddha reportedly said, why do I, who am impermanent myself, seek my happiness in other things which are impermanent? So Kiara decided you can't find any lasting satisfaction in this life, and she set herself on a course of spiritual practice. She's written a number of good books, but here's the image from her that I want to give you. She said, think of your life as a succession of candles going by you on a conveyor belt, and your task is to light each candle when it's in front of you. If you fret about the ones that have gone past, you're going to miss the one in front of you. And if you worry about the ones that haven't gotten there yet, you're going to miss the one in front of you. So just light each candle as it goes by you. I think that's a wonderful image for mindfulness, to just be fully, totally committed to the experience of the present moment, being just set on that. So maybe the candle image will help you some. I like it. Of course, mindfulness is the heart of our practice. It brings us out of the sleepwalking through life in which most of us spend considerable time. When we're mindful, we're genuinely engaging our experiences instead of just having them sort of slide by or working with them on autopilot. Genuine practice, of course, calls for this kind of wakefulness. 
Of all the powers of our mind, mindfulness, of course, is the most important. It brings harmony among all the other faculties of mind, and it's the queen factor of enlightenment. So recognizing what is happening in the present moment is the first step in mindfulness. And we're simultaneously participating in experiences and knowing that we're doing so at the same time. Mindfulness has us keep the true nature of what we're observing before our mind. It's being in touch moment to moment. Means always keeping our experience in view, not allowing it to disappear from awareness. They say that the way to develop mindfulness is simply by being mindful. The more mindful one is, the more mindful one becomes. But we need to receive these experiences without considering them a personal possession. When we see them as belonging to a me, that makes us tend to create lots of thought worlds around them. And we lose the focus of practice instead of seeing that they're just passing experiences. So in mindfulness, we want to stay in a non-conceptual, not thinking about the experiences, just a non-conceptual, bare attention, not adding anything to our experiences. Mindfulness is before any words or concepts, reflecting only what's happening exactly as it occurs. If we start interpreting, comparing, analyzing, or judging, we can no longer see the experience in pure immediacy. And right mindfulness is also impartially choiceless. It doesn't decide where to invest attention, but just stays with what's happening here now. The task is simply to note whatever comes up as it's occurring, riding the changing of events the way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. And right mindfulness is also not superficial. It sinks deeply into its objects, not looking at them from a distance or skimming the surface. Always keeping the object in view, it never forgets it or lets it disappear. And it sees the changes that are going on in each of our experiences. Meeting these experiences face to face, not letting anything go by without awareness, not missing that candle right in front of us. Such mindfulness guards and protects us from unwholesome states of mind. So I have a quote here. Right mindfulness is to observe, to note, to discern phenomena with utmost precision until their fundamental characteristics are brought to light. End of quote. Sometimes perceiving subtle experience is difficult. 
We need to persist and not give up, but just again and again give attention to the objects that draw our attention in our practice. This queen factor of enlightenment means it's the most important thing that we need for enlightenment. Being mindful really isn't difficult, but remembering to be mindful can be difficult. And to help, the Buddha pointed out four objects for mindfulness with which I'm sure some of you are familiar. He said be mindful of body, be mindful of feeling tone, That's the pleasantness or unpleasantness with which our experiences impact us, a crucially important thing to be aware of. Be mindful of mind. What state is your mind in? Is there greed present or not present, aversion present or not present? Just what is the state of the mind? And then finally, the fourth thing are the objects of our experience. When we're with the sensations of the breath and other body sensations, we're practicing mindfulness of body. We practice mindfulness of feeling tone when we're in touch with the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experiences. These are very important because they're the precursors to the unwholesome, tormenting mind states. When things are pleasant, it tends to draw us into greedy mind states. And when they're unpleasant, it tends to pull us into aversive mind states. Anger, fear, sadness, resentment, impatience, long, long list. When we're aware of what the contents of our mind are, the emotions and other states of mind, we're practicing mindfulness of mind. When we're in touch with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and we recognize emotions, thoughts, and other mental content as objects of awareness, not going off getting lost in them, we practice awareness of objects of experience. Now I want to move on and say some things about concentration. I like to define concentration simply as obedience of mind. It's having a mind that pays attention to what you tell it to pay attention to. And to train that mind to do it can be a lot like trying to train a puppy. The puppy runs all over the place, but if we patiently say sit and squatch its hindquarters down and then good boy, good boy, you know, and get it to stay. Eventually, when we say sit, that puppy sits, and when we say stay, that puppy stays. Getting this thing to sit and stay, of course, is much, much harder than training the puppy. But it's the same process. Goes out, okay, come back. This is what you're supposed to be paying attention to. Goes off again, bring it back. Takes time, but it gradually, gradually starts to listen to us and to what we tell it to do. There are really two different kinds of concentration, and I think sometimes people get confused about concentration because they don't realize that. 
they think of concentration more as what you do if, say, you're doing something like the loving-kindness practice where you hold your attention on those blessings of loving-kindness or you're doing some form of a sacred word practice where you choose a word and just keep your attention on that one thing. That's one kind of concentration where you choose an object and hold your attention on it. It's a very valuable form of practice, but it's different than our mindfulness practice. And although many people do some of that form of practice alongside mindfulness, like many of you, I'm sure, do some loving-kindness practice, uh, the mindfulness is the most important. And it uses a different kind of concentration. It's being able to have the mind move from object to object of experience without surfacing or getting lost. So it's not focusing on one object, but on successive objects, but with the same depth. And both forms of concentration can get just as deep. So concentration is extremely important because it defines the depth of our practice. The different stages in jhana, our meditative absorption, are defined by how deep our concentration is, which changes the way that the mind is relating to the meditation object as the concentration gets deeper and deeper. Eventually, concentration develops into a one-pointed focus where there's absolutely nothing else flittering around the edges of concentration except what we've told it to pay attention to, that those changing experiences. A major obstacle to concentration is hankering after the past and yearning for the future. Concentration is actually one of the very last of the important mind states to fully ripen. But practice brings fruits long before it has fully ripened. And we're not practicing with the object of just becoming concentrated, but for other things that the deep concentration can bring. Because without that steadiness of mind, you can't penetrate reality sufficiently enough to see the truth. So we sit and we let our heart become very still, our mind become very concentrated, and then we use that concentration to examine the nature of our mind and body, to be with our experiences. The more we want to see, the deeper the concentration we need. Touching Nibbana, to which we all hope our practice leads, requires very intense concentration. <coughs> now a few words about... The Pali word is wiria. Um, it literally translates virility, which doesn't quite do it for me, and I'm sure for the other women in the room. But it's most commonly translated as effort or energy. I prefer to call it diligence, because effort sort of gives that pushing sort of connotation and energies like 
too general for me. So I'm going to call it diligence. That's what I do when I teach. Um, it implies a brave, wholehearted, and earnest effort in our practice. Some call it the state of the heroic ones. It's the effort we make to stay alert, the energy we need to be aware of what is happening, but it is not struggling or coercing ourselves. Right diligence means resolve and persistence. And diligence also has to be receptive. It calls for patience throughout whatever difficulties might come. Right diligence or right effort has four major tasks. We arouse diligence not to permit the arising of evil unwholesome states, to abandon whatever unwholesome states have already arisen, to arouse wholesome states, and to maintain the wholesome states that have already arisen. First, a little about preventing unwholesome states for arising. We all carry many mental tendencies that are outside of our awareness. They're called latent karmic tendencies. Preventing this latent unwholesomeness from arising means not to get into greedy, aversive, or delusional reactivity to events as they occur. And there's an analogy I like about this. They say there's three kinds of fire in a matchbox. The first lies latent in the matches. Before the match is even struck, there's latent fire. That's like our latent karmic tendencies. When the match is ignited, that's like when those latent karmic tendencies have come alive in our mind. They've come up, and we find ourselves in a state of greed or aversion of some kind. But there's still a third thing that can happen once those things have arisen in our mind. If that match that has been struck is applied to something else, that fire is going to consume something else. And when we act on those tendencies that have arisen into our mind, when they spur us to action, that's like the fire that is spread by using the match to ignite other things. So we can't change the fact that the fire is inherent in the match, that those latent karmic tendencies are there, but we work not to have them arise into our awareness where they can lead us into action that can cause harm. When we're careless about sensory input, we really put ourselves at risk because the wrong kind of sensory input can easily spark these latent tendencies into arising. And a mind that roams freely is just ripe to be spurred into reactivity. So some restraint of what kind of sense experiences we choose to have can help us prevent unwholesome states. We might all know some of the things that it's very useful for us to avoid um, I am happy to admit that I'm past this time, I think. 
there was a time in my life when I had to accept the fact that if I kept ice cream in my house, it was going to be gone almost immediately. The first thought that I had of that ice cream, and it was out of the freezer, and it was gone. Um, I don't keep ice cream. I quit keeping ice cream in my house first, but (laughs) finally went to just desugaring in general, but that's another story. But for me, it was ice cream. For others of you, it will be other things. But there's some things we just have to be willing to avoid if they're not going to spur us into reactivity to them and then action that we don't want to engage in. Inattentiveness to the feeling tone of experiences, of course, is another big problem because I'll repeat again, pleasant experience, like the thought of that ice cream, tends to draw out greed. Unpleasantness tends to draw out aversion. When the feeling tone is sort of neutral, we're likely to become inattentive because it doesn't grab us. Pleasantness and unpleasantness at least get our attention. They grab us. So what about eliminating wholesome states that are already there? Of course, this is what our practice does. Often when we're practicing, an unwholesome state will come up, but it's come up for us to be able to look at it and let go of it. We simply watch them as they surface without feeding them or getting caught up in them. Mindful watching is itself a wholesome state, and the primary way to eliminate unwholesome states is by turning the mind to a wholesome one. So being with this arising difficult material mindfully gradually reduces its pull on us. As we watch anger, sadness, jealousy, boredom, and so on, with mindful attention, we're eliminating them. And we can practice eliminating unwholesome states in our daily life, too. When we're aware of one, we can focus on its opposite, our engaging behaviors that compete with these unhelpful states. Acting generously combats stinginess. Celebrating others' good fortune and speaking of their good qualities can remove envy, and so on. Another method for eliminating an unwholesome state is reflecting on its ugliness feeling its shamefulness, and dredging up a kind of self-respect that makes us want to abandon it. And respect for others can also help us shrink from causing harm. And eventually, revulsion might drive the state away. We have to be careful, though, that the revulsion isn't toward ourselves, but toward the unwholesome state. Sometimes simply turning attention elsewhere and ignoring a state is the best solution, too. Meditation practice will bring forth wholesome states that create happiness in the mind. So our practice is one definite way to develop wholesome states. It develops such states as these spiritual factors that we're talking about and the factors of enlightenment and a number of virtuous qualities And it guides us to deeper practice and eventually to freedom. But there are also specific practices like loving kindness or compassion practice that encourage their corresponding virtues to blossom. 
So that's why some of us will also, in addition to our mindfulness practice, do loving kindness and similar practices. And we can also put ourselves in situations that easily draw out generosity, gratitude, respect, caring, compassion, gentleness. Such occasions easily present themselves to us if we don't insulate ourselves from the world's suffering. A very important support for wholesome states is acting on them. How often we can let a generous or compassionate impulse go by without following through. Acting on a wholesome state strengthens their quality in our minds and can make them habitual. Some Buddhists take time-limited vows to act on every serious invitation to a chosen wholesome state. Very common one is generosity. Every time the serious thought of giving arises, I'll follow through. This is usually done on a time-limited basis. You don't commit the whole rest of your life. People might feel uncomfortable doing that. And the vow is simply a promise to yourself. It's not anything other than that. I promise myself I'm going to develop this virtue by acting on it. Another practice that's quite common, and it actually it's well known in the world, um, is, is the practice of gratitude. Some of you have undoubtedly heard of this, the practice of every night before you go to bed. Think of three things from the day for which you can be grateful. Um, when we do a practice like this, it bends our mind more and more towards seeing the, the goodness and the, and the wonderful things in our lives and toward being more and more grateful. And gratitude is really a delicious state of mind to experience. So these are ways that we work with, develop, strengthen, and hold on to wholesome states. So we've done the three that are also factors of enlightenment and on many other lists, mindfulness, concentration, and diligence. Now something that's not talked about quite as much, I'm going to say some words about faith. Um, faith is really poorly understood in the Western world, and that's disappointing because the original meaning of the words that we use to express faith, like the word faith itself and the word believe, originally had quite different meanings than meaning that I'm holding on to the idea that these things are true, which is the picture most people have of faith, holding particular opinions to be certain and true. The word faith itself came from the Latin word fides, which originally meant faithfulness or commitment. didn't mean believing particular ideas were true. And the word believe came from a root that meant beloved. To believe something was to beloved something, to make it beloved to you, to make it dear to you. So words like believe and, the, and faith that indicate allegiance, commitment, the placing of one's heart, choice, those were the original meanings of these words. And they just went haywire in the Western world and the way in which many people use them. 
The Buddha taught that faith as commitment, as setting your heart on something, that this comes from awareness of suffering. And it means confidently setting our hearts on a spiritual solution to the problems of human existence. Brings peace. And actually there are two things that they say are very, very important for having the kind of peace that lets our practice develop. One is being moral, and the second is the trusting confidence of faith. These are the qualities that foster development in meditation. So the the Buddhist understanding of faith is very much like the original meanings of our words faith and belief, which got so distorted in our culture. Buddhist philosopher Alan Watts, I'm sure some of you have read Alan Watts. He's a great read. He contrasted faith and belief to express, um, he, he contrasted faith and belief. He said that believers insist that reality is how they say it is, while faith is openness to truth, whatever it might be. Belief clings, but faith lets go. Belief sits down in the middle of the road to suck the thumb that points to the truth instead of going where it points. Watts went on to say, talking about religious opinions, that their interpretive overlays on religious experiences are even worse, their interpretations that other people have given to us as objects that they say we have to accept as true. They can experience by imposing immutability on it and offer tunnel vision definitions of what can't really be canned. They obscure what is essential. So beliefs are opinions to which we cling. Watts said the more beliefs we have, the more we insist on the truth of particular understandings, the less room there is for the openness that faith requires. So often the words of belief statements become objects of idolatry, and people get trapped in dogmas and creeds and other canned opinions. And when they're confronted with a religious experience, it quickly leaps to concepts, to their graven image interpretations. And this cuts off openness to explore deeply or even feel genuinely just exactly what is being given to us. Some of you know that I'm a great fan of Christian mystic John of the Cross. Um, John has actually been called a crypto-Buddhist by many people. And John has wonderful teachings on faith also, which correspond to the original meanings of the words, not the ones that many people put on them uh, today. He said that actually in spiritual practice, faith is our only guide. But how did he define it? That burning in our heart that draws us toward what we're seeking. That's how he defined it, very, very much like the Buddhist understanding of faith. Um, 
Many of you know my daughter, Rebecca Bradshaw, who has spoken here usually twice a year when she's in town. She speaks here, and some of you have sat retreat with her. I gave her John of the Cross to read, and in half an hour, barely into him, she was back saying, Mom, this is Dhamma, this is Dhamma. She recognized that John was Buddhist at heart, although he probably didn't know it. So for Buddhists, faith is a motivational, not a cognitive concept. It's a trust in what experience has taught us combined with a desire for spiritual fruition. So you never, never equate faith with opinions. Faith is one basis for opinions, the Buddha taught, but it's not equated with opinions. Sometimes our faith draws us into particular opinions. But opinions are, of course, a real danger, as you know, in our practice. He said a second, the Buddha said a second basis for opinions is preference. This means that we accept as true what we want to be have as true. It's wish fulfillment. If I want it to be true, therefore I'll, I'll consider it true. And a third basis, he said, for holding opinions is tradition. This is very common in the Western world. But the Buddha said, don't believe anything that anyone tells you, no matter on what authority. And he said that included not to believe what he, the Buddha, told you also. However, he said, if you're attracted to a spiritual teaching for any reason, try it out. See what you learn from practicing it, what fruits it bears in your life. Don't accept it because someone told you to accept it. Then he said a fourth way that we acquire these unhelpful opinions is the scholarly way of arguing on evidence. This, of course, does not go very far with spiritual truths. And his fifth and final way was liking to ponder views. Just random thoughts lets conclusions arise from the wanderings of the mind. Um, many of us have engaged in some of the kinds of mental sloppiness that the Buddha is talking about here. Um, hopefully, we quit doing it. Our Theravadan tradition defines three stages of faith. First is bright faith. That starts when a particular teaching attracts us. Maybe the teaching itself strongly appeals, or it's the path of someone whose life seems quite beautiful, or something about the teaching gets associated with a highly positive experience, such as peace or beauty or goodness. For whatever reason, we see a teaching as worthy and decide to try it. The chief function of this bright faith is to get us to try out a practice. But bright faith, like the first flush of romantic love, is always doomed to die if it's not followed by something more substantial. It'll slip away and we wonder what we ever found attractive in the first place. Even the most beautiful other life eventually reveals some flaw. The most appealing teaching has parts that are less satisfying and so on. So this faith of surface attraction 
will die. But if we respond to bright faith by practicing a teaching, then another kind of faith can start to grow. If the teaching is worthy, our life will noticeably improve. We taste and find the teaching sweet. We have subjected it to tests that it passes. Its results confirm faith. This doesn't mean that things are always pleasant, but that the teaching is producing the results that it promised. Its fruits prove its value. And the confirmed faith of this stage is stronger, and it can ride out some hard times. It can stand being tried. But faith is not yet entirely secure. If we become lax in our practice, confirmation and faith can wane in the face of other satisfactions that are antagonistic to the demands of practice. A point can arrive when faith becomes invincible faith, the third stage. Actually, they say this comes with the first enlightenment. Even when it's most difficult, we will still hold to the course that we've set ourselves. There's no turning back. Now, remember, this does not mean that we feel certain about particular opinions. That's utterly foreign to Buddhist understandings. It just means that invincible faith firmly establishes our heart in spiritual practice, and we won't abandon it. Now, wisdom. Wisdom is fully right understanding, seeing things as they truly are, and it's what finally frees us from suffering and brings us to our true joy. It unfolds over practice in a series of what are called insight knowledges. And these knowledges each have a purifying effect on our minds and our hearts. And these insight or knowledges um, that unfold deepen with the deepening stages of practice, which I said our concentration defines. Some of them, the early ones, will continue to unfold over the course of practice. One of the very first two that start happening to us are insights about both morality and about body and mind. Um, I want to point out now, an insight doesn't necessarily mean that you have this blinding aha experience. An insight is simply something that you know because you saw it in your practice. It's not something that you got to by thinking through or reasoning about. It's what your practice has shown you. So we have a lot of insights that we don't originally recognize as insights unless we do just a little reflection. For example, the very first time that you tried to sit in meditation, you undoubtedly got the insight that this thing is a heck of a lot more unruly than you thought it was. I thought I could put my attention on something and it would stay there. And look, it won't, you know. That's an insight. Your practice showed you. And what your practice shows you, you know in a real way. 
somebody could sit and tell you, well, when you're, when you're going to meditate, you're going to find your mind's unruly. It's a different level of knowing. You might think, okay, the person knows what they're talking about. It'll be that way. But when you see it in your practice, you know it in an altogether different way. These insights about body and mind, that's, that's the very first one, I think, for just about everybody. But they will start, you'll see, you'll start to see in your practice how, yes, the feeling tone of my experience can lead me into reactivity unless I clearly see the pleasantness and unpleasantness and develop an ability just to be without it. If I'm inattentive or not paying, it just draws me, sucks me right into reactivity. Just think of the number of people when they announce the newest electronic toy or out lining up on the sidewalk in the rain the night before to be one of the first to get it. That's how greed can just suck us along, you know. But when you start seeing how those reactive mind states arise out of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experience, and you'll see it in your practice because you'll see it happening in your own mind. You'll see how an intention leads into action unless you see the intention early enough and can cancel it. You'll start to see clearly the difference between the feel of an emotion in your mind and the thought that it tends to draw because we often think the thought is part of the emotion, but of course it isn't. It's extra. You'll start to see all these things about body and mind. And we also get very early insights into morality. It's a rare person who can't sit any length of time at all without eventually having something come up that they didn't think much about at the time they did it, but now they look at it and they say, doesn't look quite so good. And it will also flush up things that we'd sort of swept under the rug that we need to recognize as behavior we don't want to go to again. So this and the insights about body and mind will continue across practice. When our practice reaches a certain depth, we start having the insights that they call early insight. And this is when we have the lived in our practice, the lived experience of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of the no-self, our essencelessness. And again, take impermanence. Oh, yeah, we can know that as head knowledge. Of course, nothing lasts, you know. That's one level of knowing. We can know it from experience. Your favorite pet dies, or you drop and break your favorite cup. Oh, gone. That's a little bit deeper level of knowing, but the way it impacts us in our practice, we know so thoroughly we know impermanence so thoroughly that it affects the way we live. It makes us less graspy. It makes us understanding, truly, you can't take it with you. It, um, so all of these insights, when they start coming and deepening in our practice, when we've reached a certain depth of practice, produce life-changing events. They're life-changing for us. After we've gotten through a certain amount of that, there's a, a quite beautiful stage of practice comes where we're flooded 
with wonderful spiritual insights and beautiful states of mind and all of that. And, of course, we get attached to them, you know. This, is a, this place is a stopping point in practice for many people. The insight that finally has to come there is what practice is really about. It's about cleansing our hearts and our minds. It's not about pleasant, good feelings. And once that insight comes, we're willing to give up all that. And we move into a really rugged stage of practice called advanced insight. It's insight into the actual path of practice itself. And all of these experiences of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and essencelessness deepen. And, of course, finally, once we've worked our way through all of that, the final insight, of course, is the insight into nibbana, um, which is the end, of course, of, of our practice. So... Wisdom then will develop as our practice develops and it comes in the silence and the stillness of our simply paying attention to what we're given to see moment to moment in our practice. So they say that the growth in these spiritual factors then help carry our practice to fruition. And my wish for all of us is that we grow in them. And with that, and I'm not quite sure how we're going to handle all of this, I'm quite deaf. I took my, no, I took my hearing aid out because I was pretty sure that the electronics would conflict with all of this stuff. There is a microphone that she will pass around. It's very important if I'm going to hear a question that you speak directly this way into, if you do this, I won't hear you. You have to hold it like this and talk right face to face like that. And then I'll, I'll put, I think they still want to record this, so I don't want to put the hearing aid back in, but I have to be able to hear you. So does someone have a question they'd like to ask? Could you differentiate for us knowledge and wisdom? They call the they call it insight knowledges, um, but they're by that they're referring to these diff, this wisdom that unfolds over time. Knowledge for most of us means the kind of stuff that we get from books. In fact, there's a saying I can't remember who said it, but I really liked it that if we get a lot of information, that can crowd out knowledge. If we get a lot of knowledge, like the stuff that we get from pondering and thinking and studying books, that can crowd out wisdom. And I think that's true sometimes. Um, but if by knowledge you mean you know stuff that we get by study and knowing, that's not how the spiritual wisdom comes. It comes directly as practice experiences. Anybody? Well, this would be unusual. <laughs> Usually we have to close it off. 
one thing I wanted to say before she does her closing, and I'll say it now, and then we can check and see if any other questions came up to people before then. Um, those of you, and I mentioned it briefly in passing this time, um, know that um, what Joseph Goldstein told me, actually, Joseph has been my major teacher, and what he told me was, he says, your task is to bring this practice to Christian people. Um, and I've faithfully done that with a Buddhist Christian retreat that we're now in our 28th year of running this Buddhist Christian retreat every summer. If you have Christian friends that might want to be exposed to the practice, or if you yourself are interested in, the, it's mostly John of the Cross, and the overlay of how this, this can work with people who still want a Christian faith, um, there's my Buddhist Christian retreat every summer. Um, I have up here, if anyone wants to give me a name and email address and get notification about it, they can. I also put out by the Donna Bowl the email address if anyone just wants to copy the email address down and wants to email me to, to let me know. You could do it one of two ways. And I also will tell you that here, of course, you have classes here, which is those of you who live in the Twin Cities and everything. If you have friends up north, I regularly teach classes in the Forest Lake, Wyoming, Chisago City area, and you could clue your friends up north into that. And the email address is out by the Donna Bowl. You could copy it down from there, or if you want it up here. So that I wanted to say before she did her closing. Have we come up with any more questions? Oh, we have. Um, this may be too big of a question, but I was wondering if you could speak on a little bit how Christianity intersects with your study of Buddhism and how the more theistic model of Christianity fits in with Buddhism. Really, the only place I see intersect between Buddhism and Christianity is in mystics like John of the Cross. Um, and, and these are people who spent a lot of time in deep, silent practice. And I'm quite convinced that John must have been, I mean, he didn't formally learn it or anything, but he must have been doing mindfulness practice because his teachings so parallel Buddhist teachings. And his description of his experience of God was, I abandoned and forgot myself, all things cease. That cessation of thingness, any Buddhist could describe the touch of Nibbana in that way. And that was exactly how he chose all things ceased, he said. Um, so I'm convinced he was doing some form of mindfulness. But he isn't the only one, which is interesting. Um, there, there was one um, who spoke of the sacrament of the present moment. Um, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection said, I find God as readily among my pots and pans as I do in the chapel. He was undoubtedly doing his pots. He was a cook for his religious order. He was undoubtedly doing it like Thich Nhat Hanh says, wash the dishes to be washing the dishes, not to get the dishes done. He was obviously in that mindful way with his ongoing experience. So there are select people across the, the Christian tradition. And I focus on these people as a way that if they still want their Christian tradition and they can look to their mystics, 
they can find how this practice will be a method for accomplishing what these mystics have said needs to be accomplished. But churched Christianity doesn't really go with, with Buddhism, to be honest. <laughs> and certainly creeds and dogmas and all of that don't, you know, because that's clinging to opinions. So my, my Christianity is quite select. <laughs> my brother calls me a cafeteria Christian. That's their term for people who pick and choose, you know. But hey, isn't that what any wise person does? You don't, as the Buddha said, you don't swallow whole what people are telling you to swallow. You, you exercise a little judgment. <laughs> Could you say something about the 12 steps? About the... The 12 steps. The 12 steps? Yeah. Um, I actually have, with a, a, one of my main early students who, who now does some teaching himself, we've actually led 12-step Vipassana retreats. I have never worked a 12-step program, so Tom did the 12-step side of it while I taught the Vipassana when we led those retreats. I think this practice is an absolutely wonderful one for supporting 12-step work. I actually started leading, and I've, I've sort of quit being involved in that now. I've turned it over to Tom, who's down in Mankato, and if anybody would, but I think you have people locally here, too, who do it, but if anyone wants to be in touch with Tom in Mankato, I'll be quite happy to put you in touch. Again, you'll have my email address, and I'd put, he does weekends, um, for 12-steppers. Um, I mean, certainly this, this practice will teach you the acceptance of the fact of powerlessness in many ways. If you have trouble finding a higher power that works for you, the practice itself is a wonderful higher power. It will work for you. The practice will take your inventory. Well, I mentioned that in my talk. The practice will take your inventory for you. It will, it, will bring, it will bring up awareness of the people that you've wronged, and that brings, that brings the desire to make right what you can make right. And so, I mean, just through the, the whole program, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful support for 12-step work, in my opinion. And as I said, although, I, although there is a priest up in Toronto who wants for his 12-step people up there, wants me to come and work with him, so I might do one in Toronto at some point. But meanwhile, anyone who wants to be in touch with Tom in Mankato, because he's been working with this for years, 20 years maybe? 20, 25 years, actually. It was shortly after we started teaching that I started working with Tom, and, and Tom eventually reached a point where he started teaching, you know, and he's, he's like 35, 40 years in 12-step work himself. So uh, being very new uh, to practice, I would say um, hearing all of these stages and all these steps seems fairly overwhelming and, and exciting at the same time. I'm, I'm a little higher, I think. Okay, there we go. Is that better? Um, so being very new to practice, um, these steps and stages seem fairly overwhelming and exciting at the same time. Um, do you have any words of encouragement to you know um, 
about how to keep your your sort of yourself in 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 this practice um you know going forward through through all these stages now i think you said that these steps and everything are inspiring but overwhelming yes and do i have anything to say to actually your your task is so simple it's just to be with what's there and the practice in its own time in its own way ripens and it's not something that you can force or control or direct um, it just unfolds as it's going to unfold and for some people it goes faster than others and some are lucky some are unlucky no control over that uh, for some it's more difficult and for some it's easier but Upandita who if some of you don't know he was one of Joseph Goldstein's major teachers and he recently passed a couple of months ago, in case some of you don't know that. Um, Upandita was insistent that it is possible in this very life to get there if one applies oneself. So is that a little encouragement? Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that when a wholesome state comes, uh, you want to try to perpetuate that, keep that going as long as possible. And it, it strikes me as somewhat odd that when an un, what we call unwholesome, which is just part of the human condition, for instance, anger, which I perceive is about hurt, try to uh, uh, eliminate that as quickly as possible, to have its full career. This anger is, or my thoughts about whatever is coming up, and I got to get this, get rid of this. Part of that, I was hearing you in and out. I'm going to try to answer what I think I heard, and if I'm not on enough, tell me. <laughs> First of all, an emotion can be triggered by this. Sir, a thought can trigger an emotion. When, when an emotion is there, it always seems to want to draw thought that supports it. You're angry, it wants to draw angry thoughts. You're sad, it draws sad thoughts. When we work with these in our practice, it's very, very important not to go off into the thought, just to feel the quality of the emotion itself in both your mind and your body, because they're going to be reflected in your body also, like the, the heat and the tension and, and all of anger, say. The feeling in the mind is separate from the thought. You don't want the thought. The thought feeds and strengthens the emotion. And that's what so many people do. They're sad. They think sad thoughts. They get sadder. That draws more sad thought. They get sadder and so on. Don't want to do that. The way you eliminate them is when you're sitting in your practice and all of a sudden the anger surges. You don't start thinking, where's this coming from? What's this about? No, you, you just feel it. And by just feeling it, it works its way through. It generally leaves you at the end with some understanding of what it was about, but you see it in your practice. You don't think to it. If you get off into thinking, you're feeding that emotion. Um, quick, a uh, quick uh, way of proving to you that the, the feeling of the emotion in your mind is different from the thought. At the end of the day, Someday you might have said, gee, I was kind of blue today. 
that blue feeling in the mind, that's sadness without any thought associated with it. Or, gee, I sure was on edge today. That's anxiety in the mind without any particular thought associated with it. So we have these moments when we recognize that, you know, and so you don't want the thinking, but you want to be holy with feeling the emotion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.